Open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Any children here, kindergarten to first grade, who'd like to go to children's church can find that at the back of the sanctuary in the foyer. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's on page 177, if you're using a pew Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And this morning in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 177. Today we come to one of the most well-known, one of the most appreciated, one of the most uh, valued parts of the whole Bible. It's one of those parts of the Bible that even... People who don't know anything about the Bible or or aren't very religious have heard of and maybe even have a positive attitude toward. We come this morning to the Ten Commandments. So here in Deuteronomy 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 1, let me read them for you. It says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien living within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and then it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. These are God's Ten Commandments. And as I said, it's one of those parts of the Bible that, that people have um, heard of and are aware of. And so I just want to think with you this morning about the Ten Commandments as a whole. I just want to take them as, uh, as one sort of study. Uh, you have to know how hard I fought against the temptation to preach ten sermons here. 
but I, I'm restraining myself. I want to keep us moving through Deuteronomy so that we're not in it for, you know, a whole decade. But I, I'd like to uh, just keep us moving and look at the whole Ten Commandments as a literary unit, sort of the way they were presented together. And what we're going to find, I think, as we study Deuteronomy down the road, is that a lot of these commandments are going to be reiterated and fleshed out uh, more fully. So we're, we will be drawing upon the Ten Commandments throughout the rest of Deuteronomy. Uh, but, but this morning I just want to look at them, and I want to do three things then. It's like kind of give you an overview of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first thing I want to do is I want to try to just emphasize the centrality of the Ten Commandments. Why are these so important? Why have so many people uh, exalted them as, as sort of an ideal of a legal code of morality? So the centrality of the Ten Commandments. And then the bulk of the sermon I want to spend just going over this, the content of the Ten Commandments. What do they say? Let's just you know look at them and kind of count them one by one. And then finally, we'll, I want to talk about sort of the, for lack of a better word, the effects of the Ten Commandments. If I hold them central, if I really get their content and I incorporate it into my life, it's going to have a certain effect on me. And what are those effects? And I want to just think about a couple things that the Ten Commandments will do for us and for our hearts. So, so let's start with the centrality of the Ten Commandments. Why are these so important? Why is it they're so important, not only in the Bible, but also outside of the Bible and other cultures in Western civilization? I mean, this is one of the most important documents in some ways it's sort of a foundational document shaping our thinking about morality and, and law and society so uh, if, if you look at the bible you realize the the ten commandments are central in a number of ways they're central for the old testament let's just start right there the old testament god's law to israel has sort of at its core these ten words the decalogue have you ever heard of the ten commandments called the decalogue by the way you can figure out what that means deca means ten and log, logos, word. So it's the ten words. So that, that's why it's sometimes called the Decalogue. So you can amaze your friends this week with that uh, new vocabulary word. Uh, but but look, look back at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Notice the importance of it there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. One chapter back. Moses is recounting the time when they first got the Ten Commandments. He says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you His covenant, the Ten Commandments, which He commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. So in other words, at the center of the Old Testament story is God rescuing Israel, making a covenant with them. And here's Moses kind of summarizing that covenant and he says, the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments. So in other words, out of all the laws that, that we're going to study in Deuteronomy, Moses kind of singles out the Ten Commandments as somehow a summary of the essence of that covenant. So as so I think of it as, you know, if you think of like a huge tent, I mean, you've been to a big wedding and it's got lots of poles holding up the tent, but often at the very center of the tent, there'll be the big tall pole holding it up in the middle. And I kind of think the Ten Commandments is, is kind of like the big center pole holding up God's covenant with Israel. There's something summary about it there's something encapsulating about it and so i think that's why when you get to chapter five of deuteronomy as moses now kind of turns a corner in deuteronomy to begin laying out god's laws what does he start with ten commandments it's very central but the ten commandments is not only central in the old testament i think in it's really quite central in the new testament not exactly in the same way but but you find that that god 
brings these commandments forward into the New Testament, that Jesus and the apostles carry the Ten Commandments forward. You know, one of the tricky things about studying the Old Testament law of Moses as Christians is knowing what to do with all the commandments. I mean, we're going to find in Deuteronomy some really weird commandments from our sort of modern perspective. We're going to read things that will puzzle us. What do we do with that law? What do we do with this law? And by the way, when you came in this morning, hopefully you got from the ushers uh, one of these papers. This is a paper I wrote this fall uh, for you. This is not a scholarly treatise. I intentionally did not put footnotes in it or anything like that. But it's just a paper for the regular person in the pew to understand a way of reading the Old Testament law as a New Testament Christian. Because sometimes it is tricky to know what to do with, with the law and how to interpret it. But when it comes to the Ten Commandments, it's really not that tricky. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the great part. That's probably why people gravitate toward it. It's just not that difficult, you know. In the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, do not commit adultery. In the Old Testament, do not murder. New Testament, do not murder. Old Testament, no idols, no idols. New Testament, no idols. I mean, it's, there's a lot that's, for the most part, carried over by Jesus and the apostles into the New Testament. And I think that's why, when uh, down through church history, when pastors and theologians have written catechisms, are you familiar with catechisms? They're, they're, they're kind of like curriculum for baby Christians. That's what a catechism is. A, a, a catechism is designed to teach children and new Christians kind of the ABCs of the faith. And it's very common in Christian catechisms to include the Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments. Because it's, it's such a wonderful basic summary of this is what holiness and obedience looks like for Christians today. But even beyond the Bible, there's a kind of moral centrality, you might argue, for the Ten Commandments for all peoples, even people who aren't Jewish, who aren't Christian. You know, it's just interesting that that so many people resonate with a lot of the Ten Commandments, that you can go to cultures that have never heard the Ten Commandments, and they somehow know that stealing is wrong, that murder is bad, that, that adultery is not good for marriage and for society. That You know, even people who, who aren't Jewish or Christian seem to understand this. You know, cultures that have never heard the gospel, you know, some of these, these rules and these ideas are to some degree or another there. And so it's sort of like, why is that? It's just, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? And, and one of the, the answers to that question that theologians have kind of given down through church history is, is this idea that there's a natural law. Have you guys ever heard of this idea of natural law? Natural law means that God not only spoke his law from heaven, but he kind of, I don't know how to say this, he sort of hardwired it into our souls as human beings that at some level we all have some kind of innate sense a, that there is such thing as right and wrong, and B, kind of what it is. And so that you find some common morality, some, some kind of common moral sense. Uh, if you look at your sermon notes, which is this kind of small insert in your bulletin, if you look at the top quote on the first page, this is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It's one of the uh, kind of classic texts talking about the moral law, the natural law, rather. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required of the law, so when, when it looks like even pagan peoples are keeping the Ten Commandments, even though they haven't had the Ten Commandments in all the other God's laws, even though they didn't have the law, since they show 
Here we go. That the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And so there's been this theory down through the Middle Ages and the Catholic Church into the Protestant Reformation, even down to the present time, that, that perhaps the Ten Commandments in some general sense have been imprinted on us, that, that this sort of God's basic moral code. And so Martin Luther, for instance, said, to be sure, the Gentiles have certain laws in common with the Jews, such as these. There is one God. No one is to do wrong to another. No one is to commit adultery or murder or steal and others like them. This is written, here we go, by nature into their hearts. They did not hear it straight from heaven as the Jews did, according to Martin Luther. So it's interesting, isn't it? Now, I think you have to be kind of tenuous with this whole idea. You can't press it too far because... Even though we all have a moral sense, the Bible also teaches that we're also sinners, that, that we don't follow God, and therefore our moral sense is, is somewhat crippled. Our moral sense is clouded. You know, we can't know what right and wrong is only by asking, what does my heart tell me? Because my heart is, is also corrupt. I, I think of it kind of like, I was trying to think of an analogy, and this is what I came up with. It's, it's like those old slate tombstones in our old New England cemeteries. Every once in a while, you'll be driving somewhere, and you'll see one of those old cemeteries, you know, that goes back to 17th and 18th century folks who lived here. And you go look at those tombstones, and they're just dilapidated. They're deteriorating over time through exposure to the elements, and they're kind of run down and broken. And you're like, I think there's something written there. I can't quite tell. And if you look at it, you know, maybe that's an A, maybe that's an M, but it's, you know, mosses on it, and it's all corroded. But what you can do, actually, is you can put a piece of paper on it, right, and do... A rubbing. You can take some charcoal and you can rub it, and then the letters will appear through it. And so you can actually kind of get some of the words off of it that used to be there. I think it's illegal to rub on some of them. But anyway, so I'm not encouraging it, but I'm just saying one could do that. And it's sort of like how our hearts are. Our hearts have been dilapidated and ruined by sin. They're smudged. They're covered over. And yet, there's still some lettering there. There's still, even in the most warped of us, there's something in us that kind of knows there's a right and a wrong. There's, there are boundaries. There are things that are appropriate, even though it's smudged and twisted and distorted. And so all that to say, God's law is very central. We, we have it in the Old Testament. We have it in the New Testament. Even in our hearts, in some faint way, resonates with the fact that we're moral beings, that the idea of right and wrong is hardwired into us. Because morality is not something we all make up for ourselves. The reason there is a law is because there is a lawgiver. The reason that there's a right and a wrong is because there's a standard of right and wrong. It's not relative. If it was relative, then morality would be uh, a mirage. So then, what are these laws? What are the Ten Commandments? Let's sort of move to the next segment. So the centrality of the Ten Commandments, my second sort of major thing I wanted to cover with you was the content of the Ten Commandments. And I just want to walk you through these you know, rather rapidly, like I said, I'm going to restrain myself from doing ten sermons, but I just want to take you through them one by one. What are the Ten Commandments? You know what, let's tick them off and talk about each one for just a minute. Uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments have often been grouped into two, what are sometimes called the tables, the two tables of the Ten Commandments. The first table is Commandments 1 through 4. They all sort of group together. And the second table is Commandments 5 through 10. They all group together. And the two are interrelated, but there's still some kind of distinction there. And the first four commandments, the first table, you could say all have to do with 
commandments related directly to how I respond to God. So they're kind of, think about it this way, the vertical commandments. They're the commandments that have to do with how I relate to God, how I react to God, what I do directly to honor God. Obviously, everything we do honors God, but these are sort of more direct, in a sense, uh, of directly responding to Him. And so the first commandment, verse uh, 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall have no other gods before me. There it is. It's so basic. This is the starting point. We love, we worship God alone. No other gods. Just Him. It's, it's this idea of our hearts being exclusively devoted to the Lord with no other competitors. He's a jealous God. And so loving God alone, making Him first in our hearts and our lives. Uh, and, and in a way, I think that first commandment is, summarizes all the other commandments about God. If we keep God first, if we don't have any other gods before Him, that's sort of the essence of what we're supposed to do toward God. You know, I, I was thinking of like uh, some of the colleges around here. I can imagine a philosophy 101 classroom at BC or Harvard or, you know, one of the, the colleges in Boston and the, the philosophy professor standing up and saying, what is the meaning of life, you know? Write a paper on the, well, why are we here? What is, you know, mm, what is the meaning of life? And, you know, that is a big question. But in some ways, according to the scriptures, it's not a hard question. The hard thing is living it, not knowing it. But knowing it is easy. The meaning of life is to know and love and serve your creator. That's why I'm here on planet Earth. You know, the old uh, theologians put it this way. The chief end of man in other words, the chief purpose of human existence is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here. And there's a lot to that. And it's hard to do. But there's our purpose. And there it is in that first commandment. Put negatively, no other gods. Put positively, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Second commandment, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the first commandment is about who you worship. second commandment is more about how you worship. So we don't worship by making images or statues or representations of something, even if we're making representations of God. We're not supposed to do that. You know, and, and this would have made Israel really freakish in their day because all of the other cultures worship statues. Think about it. Israel had a temple, just like all the pagans. They had an altar to sacrifice animals on, just like all the pagans. They had an incense altar. They had a special room in the back where, you know, the God dwelt, so to speak, just like all the pagans. And if you went into Israel's temple, there would be the Ark of the Covenant there. And then above the Ark of the Covenant was nothing. Like, you know, can you just imagine the other pagans, like, where's your God? Like, you built this whole temple... And then you lead right up to the part where the God is, and there's nothing there. Where's the statue? And so Israel was just different. They didn't have a statue of their God. But they did have something. What was in the box? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments. So they were different. They didn't worship God by focusing their earthly attention on a statue. They worshiped God and experienced His reality and experienced His presence 
by focusing their attention on His words. And so it's, it's a unique kind of thing. And as we move into the New Testament, same thing. The focus is on God's words. And, and in the New Testament, we actually do have an idol. We actually do have a, a physical thing to worship. It's Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the, the, the one we look to. And then in Him, we all reflect Him. And so God is reflected through his people and through Christ himself. But it's not through statues. You look at the New Testament, there is zip about making statues, making icons, making stained glass, carving things to focus our attention on to worship God. And so we stand here in the, the sort of the Puritan tradition here in New England. You know, look around this room. You know, what, what do you see? It's black. Well, there's a crack right there from the construction. There's uh, some holes in the wall. And we got the exit sign over here. But, you know, there's no, where, where are the stations of the cross? Where are the statues? Where are the saints? Where's Mary? Where's the stained glass? It's not here. Why? This is not New Testament religion. That's just kind of old paganism coming back into the church because we want something to look at, to, to make it feel sacred. But statues don't make things sacred. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God is what's sacred, not something that we carve and create and focus on and so so we need to worship god the way he wants to be worshiped not just uh the way we want to or what makes sense to us in our natural fallen reason third commandment verse 11 you shall not misuse the name of the lord your god i much prefer the king james here do not take the you know the lord's name in vain you know the idea of vanity something that's just useless vain pointless don't take his name in vain <clears throat> and so we're not to take his name in vain. And I think that's something we have to work on. I mean, I just think a lot of folks use God's name as kind of an interjection or an expletive. Oh, my God, really? You know? Like, whew. You wouldn't use your spouse's name as an expletive. And maybe you do. I mean, you shouldn't. <laughs> You're not supposed to use it as an interjection. You know, you don't use, people you love and respect, you don't use their name as a four-letter word. But that's how we use God's name without even thinking about it. Interesting, isn't it? But it's even more than that. It's, it's taking oaths in God's name. It's doing things in God. You know, people do all kinds of crazy things in God's name that have nothing to do with God. And so we have to be careful that if we honor God, we're also going to honor His name. Again, it's all about if He is first, if I love Him above all else, I would respect Him. I would worship Him and not some statue of Him. I would, I, I would worship Him with my mouth. Commandment number four, I would worship Him with my time. Look at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So what does Sabbath mean? The Hebrew word Shabbat. It means to stop. So the seventh day is stop day. Everybody stop. Just stop it. <laughs> stop doing all your stuff. Rest. Focus on the Lord. As you go from Old Testament to New Testament, you see some changes in this. The Old Testament uh, believers worship God on Saturday and it's rested on Saturday. In the New Testament, uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it was so important. Because the resurrection of Jesus was like our own exodus from Egypt, that, that the Lord's Day, Sunday, became sort of the day of worship for Christians as, as the church moved forward. Uh, but, but again, we, we stop in, in some sense. We gather at least even just for a morning, we say no and we gather together to worship the Lord. And I was thinking this commandment is just so important for us New Englanders. You, you know, as I've lived now in New England for 
going on two decades, I think one of the most sort of dominant characteristics of our life together as New Englanders is we're just so busy. I mean, it's, some other parts of the country, they're a little more laid back. We're just go, 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 go. It's like waste my money, but don't waste my time. All right? We get irritated if anyone wastes time. It's like I'm trying to get somewhere. Can't you move over? You know, I'm trying to drive. You're wasting my time because you don't know how to drive. You know, and we're, we're like, you know, time is kind of this crazy thing that we all protect and we all guard. Boy, I think this commandment is so important for us in New England. For all of us, one, one morning a week, for a couple hours, to just say to our crazy lives, stop. We're going to go worship the Lord. We're going to honor Him with our time. We're going to set aside a time as holy for our families. We're not only going to let sports for our kids, as if, you know, that's so important, run over time to meet with the Lord and with His people. We're not going to let, you know, other activities crowd it out. We're going to say we're setting aside time to honor and glorify God where we just say to all of our lives that it's so important, stop. God is more important. So that's the first table. It's all about glorifying God, loving Him, putting Him first in our hearts. And then the second table, verses, uh, rather, commandments 5 through 10, would, would be what you might call the, the horizontal commandments. How we relate to each other. How we relate to the brothers and sisters in the community of faith. Because when we belong to God, we also belong to His family of faith. We belong to other Christians. And, and so we have to be faithful to each other. We're called into community with each other. In, in our case, in the setting of a local church. And so the other commandments are all about how we live out our faithfulness to God in terms of faithfulness to each other. So again, let's look at the list here. Uh, commandment number 5, verse 16. Honor your father and your mother. So parents, grandparents, we have a great uh, responsibility and privilege of teaching God's Word to our children. You know, fathers, hello my fellow dads, God has made you the pastor of your house. You need to lead your kids to know the Lord. You're like, I haven't been to seminary. It doesn't matter. Neither have they. It's great. So just <laughs> pick a little Bible verse and read it with them. You'll figure it out. You'll learn from them. It's, it's great. But, you know, we need to lead. But what's the kid's responsibility? Who here is under age 18? Just give me a little show of hands. There we go. There's a couple. This is your verse. God's talking to you. What is God saying to you? He says, honor your mother and father. They're trying, hopefully, to teach you about the Lord, and your job is to listen and to learn about the Lord. God put your parents in your life as a, a gift to you to teach you about God and so that you can respond. And someday you'll be a grown-up, and someday you might have kids, and then it'll be your job to take what your mom and dad taught you about God and teach it to your kids. And so this is how God designed his truth really to move forward. It's just family to family. It's kind of the basic uh, genetic makeup of God's people is passing his truth forward that way, Old Testament and New Testament. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. I mean, that's kind of basic, right? <laughs> if I'm faithful to you and you're faithful to me in the covenant of community, then, you know, step one, I'm not going to kill you. Uh, and you're not going to kill me. Though at times, right, we've wanted to. But we're not going to do that. We're going to protect each other's lives. We're going to guard each other's physical safety. Boy, there's a whole sermon there. Thinking about the sanctity of life. Protecting the elderly. Protect, you know, caring for the lives of those who are debilitated. Protect, uh, caring for those who are 
um, you know, mentally disabled, uh, caring for the unborn. You know, human life is a sacred thing. So there's a call here to protect life. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. If I'm faithful to you and you're faithful to me in the covenant community of faith, then that means I'm going to protect your marriage and you're going to protect my marriage. We're not going to lurk at each other's doors trying to form a wedge between spouses. You know, this applies to, you know, some of you maybe here are single or like, well, that's not really my verse because I'm not married. That's all of our verse. We all need to uphold and honor marriage. Why is marriage so important? Is, is it because being married is better than not being married? No. But marriage is a picture of God's relationship to his people. So, so throughout the New Old and New Testament, God is the husband, the church is, or Israel is the bride. And so our marriages should reflect the kind of faithfulness that we together show toward God. That's why marriage is so important. Uh, and so even if you're single, even if God's called you to singleness in your fa- this point in your life, which is great, this is fine. Paul says singleness is better than marriage, actually. But the point is we all are committed to being faithful to marriage and to supporting each other's marriages and supporting those who are married to be faithful to each other. Commandment number 8, you shall not steal, verse 19. If I'm faithful to you and you're faithful to me, we will respect what God has given to each other. We won't try to take it. Uh, We won't try to take things. We'll be satisfied with what God's given us. We won't try to take each other. You know, one of the, the issues back in those days was kidnapping and theft and slavery. And I think, boy, we could, again, if we had time for a whole sermon on this, we could talk about the issues of slavery today. Human trafficking is a major blight in the world today. It's still going on, and uh, we know it's wrong. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. If I'm faithful to you and you're faithful to me, then we're going to speak truthfully not only to each other but about each other. Think about how the legal system worked back in Israel's day. For someone to be accused of a crime, there had to be witnesses against them. And if you had two or three witnesses against somebody, they were considered guilty. So that assumed that for the legal system to work, everybody told the truth. So it's very basic. We need to tell the truth about each other. We need to not lie to each other. We we have to guard against talking about each other. I mean, some of you have been in churches for a long time. Maybe you're new to the church. That's fine. But maybe some of you sort of a history in churches. You've had the experience in churches of people talking about each other, gossiping, and you get hurt because you're in a church and people are spreading lies, spreading rumors. It should not be among God's people. We should be direct. We should be honest. We should be truthful. And we shouldn't, if I've got a problem with you and you've got a problem with me, then talk to each other. Don't, you know, until it goes around. That's how churches get ruined. That's how... People get disillusioned about the faith. It's so important to speak directly, speak honestly, to speak truth about each other. And then finally, the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. You shall not covet. What does it mean to covet? It means to desire. You see it in the next sentence. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire. So coveting is desiring. So this is an interesting commandment because the other commandments have to do with actions. This one is more about the attitude. It's about the heart attitude that precedes the action. Before I commit adultery, I covet. Before I steal, I covet. You know, Before I lie about you, there's something I want. Maybe I want that person to be on my side, so I'm coveting something. I'm, I'm yearning for something. And so we see in the first commandment, it's about the heart, putting God first. In the last commandment, it's about the heart, not coveting. And then everything in between is sort of the actions related to each of those.
So those are the Ten Commandments. So simple, yet not so easy. You know, they're amazing. Here's the cool thing, too. For those of you who like simple, you can even reduce these down to two commandments. If you wanted to, just because, you know, it's, maybe the ten is hard to remember. But you just want to simplify it even more. Jesus took the Ten Commandments, and he said, actually, that you could really pull them down to two commandments. Turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Look what Jesus did with the commandments. Matthew, chapter 22, it's on page 980 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 22, page 980. Look at verse 34. Look how Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the first table you could summarize as love God with everything you got. Second table, love God the way you love yourselves. Because you know what? We all love ourselves. We're all narcissistic at some level. So, you know, you know how to love yourself. You're natural at it. I've been doing that since I was a baby. <laughs> love other people that way. Whew. That's a tall order. Because I know how much I love myself. And these, he says, I love it. The law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, when I read that, the, the visual I had in my mind was in our mudroom at our house, we have a key rack on the wall. So, like, there's this, it's a clock. My sister gave it to me. It's a clock. And there's all these hooks. And, you know, you come in the mudroom and you hang all your junk there. So there's always just junk hanging from it. And there's, like, you know, I coach a basketball team. My whistle's hanging there. And there's a dog leash. And there's coats. And there's hats. And all this stuff's just hanging from it on these hooks. And I kind of think of it that way. You know, loving God and loving my neighbor are these two hooks. And all of these laws we're going to study over the next couple months are all just hanging down from these two principles, to love God and to love your neighbor. And by love, we don't simply mean having warm, fuzzy feelings. We mean faithfulness, being faithful to each other, being faithful to God. And so this is God's law. This is what he requires of us. So then, just to kind of quickly close on this last idea, what does that mean for our lives? So if God's law is central, if his Decalogue is central, and if we've taken the content in and really thought about those Ten Commandments, and and if we really uh, have thought about loving God and our neighbor, what's that going to do for our lives? How will that change what we do Monday morning? And let me just very rapidly think with you about three effects or consequences of the law coming into our life. And I want to do it by thinking of three objects. So if you can imagine me holding an object here. Uh, the first thing it does, the first object, think of a compass. You know, think of like a, you've been out in the woods, think of opening up a compass to try to find your way through the woods with a map. And that compass is what the Ten Commandments do. They point us the right direction. They, they point us toward the moral magnetic north. Do you want to know what the right thing to do is? Start with the Ten Commandments. If you do what they say... You're doing what's right. If I don't do what they say, I'm ignoring the compass and I'm going in the wrong direction. So I need to follow God's law. Um, 
We need to teach the Ten Commandments to our children, to our grandchildren, to our kids in Sunday school. We need to implement the Ten Commandments. Maybe you own a business. How would you implement the Ten Commandments in your business? How would you take the principles and ideas there and how would you love the people in your business and sort of integrate them that way? It's an interesting question. Maybe as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, did anyone have this experience just in the last ten minutes here, looking through the Ten Commandments? Did one of them sort of jump out at you and go like, boop, 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 you need to work on me. <laughs> You're not doing this one. Did your conscience suddenly jump and you say, wow, ooh, commandment number whatever is, is something I really need to, to do. Well, that's God's Holy Spirit talking to you. You should listen to that should do that. God's speaking to you about how He wants you to live. Use the Ten Commandments as a compass to guide you into the right and wrong of, of the way God has built this world. But then that leads to the second effect of the law. And this is kind of the interesting twist here. You've got to follow this. But the more and more you follow the compass, the more and more it becomes a mirror. So there's the second use of the law. And by what does a mirror do? It reflects us back at ourself. So the more I try to keep the Ten Commandments, the more I'm actually going to be looking in a mirror and discovering I can't keep the Ten Commandments. You know, I can't keep the Two Commandments. Make it as simple as you want and I still blow it. And so there's this funny dynamic that we're supposed to keep God's law, and you should, but be warned, the more serious you get about it, the more you're going to find yourself seriously deficient. So, you know, before you follow God's law, you're like, well, I'm fine. I'm a good person. I'm decent. But, okay, I'm going to follow God's law. Here we go. Um, you know, do not murder. Okay, fine. I'm not going to murder any more people. I'm done with that. That's easy. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm giving up my, you know, contract killing business. I'm done with that. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to honor him here. And so I'll do it. So, okay, good. I can do that. Check. No more killing. Checked it off the Ten Commandments list. And then I bump into Jesus going back to Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn there. Where Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So God's just not looking at my actions. He's looking at my heart. He's looking at my attitude, how I really feel toward people, what's inside of me. There's a lot of murder in our hearts that never gets acted upon, thank God, but it's still there. So Jesus says, God wants your heart, not just... So suddenly i got to erase that one. from. The... <laughs> I thought I had that checked off, darn it. And then Jesus hits me again, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll be faithful. Uh, uh, uh. Verse 28. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. I, I would uh, put before you that most likely every adult here has broken this commandment. That we have had lust in our hearts at different times so suddenly we find ourselves violating God's law, if not in overt action, in attitude, in thought, in intent, in the secret places of our soul that no one else sees. And we find ourselves guilty. And so the more you follow the compass, 
the more you realize I'm not following the compass. The closer I think I'm getting to the goal by following the compass, the more I'm realizing the distance was greater than I ever imagined. And that I can't keep God's law. But I'm supposed to. But I can't. And, and I want to. But I don't want to. And I find this thing in me like, oh, what's wrong with me? Who will save me from myself? Who will rescue me from this miserable moral depravity that I find within my own heart? And that leads to the third use of the law. And here I want you to think of a flashlight shining in a dark place. As we find ourselves in moral darkness, suddenly we turn on that flashlight and we point to Jesus. And we see Jesus. And and the flashlight shines on Christ. And we find that Jesus Christ is God's answer to this dilemma. Who will save me from this problem? Thanks be to God for His Son Jesus. And so this is, so do you see the flow? I follow God's law. Then I recognize that I can't keep the law, even though I know I want to and I'm supposed to, which leads me to Christ, my Savior. And, and as I shine that flashlight on Christ and I watch Him, what do I see in Jesus? I see the only human being who's ever kept the law. He kept it, not just in action, in His heart. He perfectly did what God wanted. And not only that, but then He went to the cross and He took the the consequences of law-breaking that I deserve. So He's not only my law-keeper, He's my law-breaker-absorber who absorbed what I deserve on the cross. And I realized that God has given me Christ, that that is God's answer to the moral dilemma, that the answer is not do better, more self-help, improve yourself, square your life away, but it's to recognize that if I'm ever going to be what God wants me to be, I need Jesus as my Savior. That He is God's answer. You know, uh, the Ten Commandments are one of the greatest gifts that God has given the world. One of the greatest things that all humans have is access to the Ten Commandments. But there's even a greater gift. It's the gift of, gift of Christmas. That God not only has given us a law, but He's given us a Savior, Jesus Christ. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This is God's gift. Not just the right way to live, but a Savior who can save me from my my failures and make me right with God so that I might in turn really seek the Lord by His help. Have you received... God's gift? Have you only taken the gift of the Ten Commandments? Where are you at in that process? Are you just now trying to get your life together? That's good. Keep seeking Him. But as you come to recognize through the very law that you're seeking to follow your own fallibility, may you then take the next step of seeing Jesus and receiving into your own heart and your own life the Savior that God has given from heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We want to love You. We ask Your forgiveness for the lack of love for You. God, thank You so much for Jesus. We give You praise this morning for Jesus who kept the law on our behalf and who bore the curse of the law on our behalf so that we could be Your children, Lord. And we love You. And we just pray now, change our hearts. Make us people who want to do Your will, God. Who live the law out through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our own efforts and our own strength.
Lord, I pray that all of us here would receive this Christmas, even not even Christmas, Lord, today. Open our hearts to receive Jesus. That we would receive the gift you've given and simply trust in him for our, our life and our future and our relationship with you. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.